Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Adam Rapon, an Olympic bronze medalist in figure skating, an artist, activist, and author, among many other things. Welcome, Adam. Hey, Sasha. I'm so happy to be here. It's so good to see you. I feel like we haven't seen each other in so long, and I was looking back through your Wikipedia because my memory is... Um, Fails, fails at time. And I realized I think the last time that we were in the competitive circuit together was 2010. Yeah, right? that's that was, right. Yeah. That was my final hurrah comeback, mm-hmm. which wasn't that much of a hurrah, but just I was hurrah. <laughs> attempt. Yeah. And you were kind of in the midst of gearing up for your Olympic trajectory. I think that's right. I think that our careers kind of overlapped in that I was really just at the beginning of mine when you were ending yours. So it's so funny. Doesn't it feel, it feels like in like sports and in athletics, like when you have these uh, different cycles of people who you compete with, that sometimes it feels like they're from like another world. So I, I feel like we had that like brief connection. So like because we never toured together, we either. never toured together, and that's a whole which is different a element of bonding. Yes, but maybe, we're bonding now. Maybe it's not too late. We could have some kind of we'll tour. We'll find something to do. Well, a something tour. to tour. Yeah. yeah, we'll find that. So let's go back to the Olympics. Your incredible Olympic moment in 2018. I guess at the age of 28, you made it to your first Olympics after missing a spot on the team in 2010 and 2014. And I don't think most people can really understand what that's like to miss the team and then train for another four years and another four years for the hope of fulfilling a childhood dream. And as athletes, we dedicate our whole lives to this singular goal of validating ourselves by going to the Olympics. And I just want to know how you handled those experiences and were they, were they similar or were 2010 and 2014 pretty different for you? I think... They felt very different. I think in 2010, for me to make the team, I was really relying on a lot of other people making mistakes. And I knew that. And I knew that in my long-term goal plan of what I wanted to do was that, you know, by the time I would make it to the 2014 season, I felt like I would be in the best shape of my life. That if I didn't make it to the 2010 Olympics, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I was still completely crushed. I was devastated. But, you know, on the other side of that experience, it's like, you know, what were you expecting? There was, you know, Evan Lysacek, who was Olympic champion, Johnny Weir, who was a multiple-time national champion and world medalist, and Jeremy Abbott, who was also like a four-time national champion. And it, and it was, you know, me with a, a curly bob and a one-piece. An piece. amazing bob. Yeah. I miss it. <laughs> it was, <laughs> that's how I knew you. It was a nice bob. Um, but, you know, I was I was super young. I just turned 20. I, I still felt like I had so many years to go. I, I, you, when you're young and in the middle of competing, you don't really see the end. You can only feel those moments in the now. And it always feels like there's a next one. There's a next one. You don't feel like those moments are fleeting. And while I was getting for 2014, I felt like it had to be then or it was going to be never. And I really felt like if I did not qualify for that team, it just wouldn't happen. People don't qualify to go to the Olympics for the first time at 28. Um, it's just not something that really happens in figure skating. And so I felt like at 24, I was already kind of pushing the limits. 
And so I went into that season with a lot of pressure on myself that I just needed to make it happen. There was no other choice. I went in, you know, with that mentality. And I remember, which like you will relate to, you know, sometimes you'll skate a program. And for me, I've had programs where you, the, you hear the music start and then the next thing you think about is, oh, I'm finished. Or you have programs where you'll be thinking the whole time. It doesn't mean that the program won't go well, but usually if you're thinking it's not the best. And I remember thinking as I started my short program at 2014 Nationals, which was going to be like a really crucial and pivotal competition for me to qualify for the games. This is the moment I've waited for. And you can smell like popcorn and hot dogs in the in the arena. And, um, you know, I, I landed the first jump in my short program and I went into the second one and I'm like, if I do this, I could go. And of course I fell. Because, you know, my fat ass was listening, like smelling hot dogs and popcorn. And I'm just trying to land all my jumps. And I'm just focused on like, what's going to happen next? I wasn't there in that moment. Um, so after 2014, that's when I was like, I really don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I can put myself through another four years because this feels awful. It was the worst feeling in the world. And uh, it wasn't so bad just for the fact that I didn't qualify for the team. It was, it, it hurt worse because I know that um, I felt like I could have done more. And um, that was something that I had to live with more so than not qualifying for the team. It's so circumstantial. It's goes, the worst feeling. And I, and I think the audience doesn't always understand that, you know, win, lose, or draw. If you know that you didn't do your best on a moment when it counted and you've dedicated your whole life to this and you have a team uh, family and coaches that are all sacrificing uh, for you for this moment, and you realize you left something on the table, and that's something that's just so, so difficult to live with. But ultimately, I think as you get older and wiser, which will happen, you know, years outside of your athletic career, you just realize like, hey, I'm actually a human being, and what mm -hmm. I did for so long and put myself through was almost inhuman. You know, athletes have to shut down so many human emotions and insecurities and other desires in order to be this pinnacle of success and this kind of amazing human specimen, mm -hmm. which— You don't appreciate it. Yes, which you showcased in the Body ESPN oh, thank you. issue, which is important. <laughs> get those pictures <laughs> yeah. while now, you're there. Get them now. Get documented. It happened. I was there. <laughs> um, I loved— your photos too. They I were. had a I had a very like a Sports Illustrated shoot where I was not it wasn't a sexy one, but it was just I was very very cut. Yes, and that's not the case anymore. Well, but. I remember <laughs> that um, when I found out that I was going to be in the ESPN body issue, I was like, okay, great, I'll probably have a few months. I'll have a new body by then, an even better one, and. Um, because it, it was shortly after the Olympics, and of course I celebrated by, like, getting cheeseburgers and going to McDonald's and, like, going out with my friends. And they're like, it's in a week. And I was like, <laughs> oops, <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was a, a bit of, like, sheer panic, but I was still in, in great shape. You looked I, amazing. Thank you. you. Amazing. Thank but you. But it's funny, when you're in that moment, it's just the way you are when you compete, and two weeks later, you're so in tune with your body. Yes. That you, you It is crazy. And it's also crazy even just being like a year and a half out of competition. I really didn't appreciate all of the hours I spent working out. It's your whole it, life. It's your whole life. You're tired all the time. You're tired all the time. And cranky because you're not eating enough. Yeah. It's your job <laughs> yeah. to be like 
cut as hell in the best shape of your life, not an ounce of fat on your body because, you know, of of course you want to look good, but at the at the end of the day, you want to perform well and you and you need to be in that and you rotate faster when you're lighter. Absolutely. As Raphael would tell would you. Would tell you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You've had your own fair share of. I certainly have. And I want to go to some questions about Twitter and then come back to coaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have such an incredible Twitter persona. And I have such admiration because you you seem to accomplish the impossible. Uh, because you, you do an incredible job mixing humor, sarcasm, and controversial political issues. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a certain Twitter battle with Vice President Pence really put you on the map outside of the figure skating world. Mm -hmm. And can you remind us exactly what happened there and what was going through your mind? I believe this was leading up to the the 2018 Olympics. Yes, I remember that uh, leading up to the Games, um, I did an interview with USA Today uh, with Christine Brennan, who I'm sure you know well. And uh, I remember I did it right outside the rink parking lot where— you know, I skated at a rink in Lakewood, California, where it was in the strip mall and there's a Coles and there's a Taco Bell. And I'm in the Taco Bell parking lot doing this interview that really changed a lot of things for me. Um, you know, I knew Taco Bell had the possibility to change things for me, just not in the capacity <laughs> that it did. You never know. You never know. Don't be afraid of Taco Bell. So I'm sitting, I do this interview and, um, Christine said something to me right before the interview. She said, you know, you're going to the Olympics and everything that you say will and can be amplified. And I said, I know that. Um, But because of the experiences I had before and from those four years I had from 2014 to 2018, I was just a different person. Um, I really, I felt less like a competitive athlete and more like a professional person. Um, I was going in, I was doing what I wanted. I was, um, really enjoying the person I was. I felt strong. I felt confident in who I was. Um, and I tried to bring that into all of the interviews and everything that I did. I would answer questions. Honestly, I would try to have a really nice conversation. Um, you know, when you're growing up, it's so easy to do those interviews and they're like, how is everything going? And you're like, it's amazing. I've added five new jumps to my program. I'm going to be the first person to do this. And I think I'm going to win. And this is probably happening after you just had a mental breakdown on the ice, which I've done. Fake it until you make it. It's all about what you project. I don't show any weakness. 100% almost teared up in a rink bathroom, gotten in my car and said, I've never been more mentally prepared. (laughs) And it's crazy. Those like those games you play, and but you know, heading into the games, I you know, I'd say you know, I'm nervous, but I feel good. I'm training well. Um, I I think I might have diarrhea when I get there, but it it'll be okay. You know, everyone has diarrhea, and so we would go and I would get, do these interviews, and um, I got asked a question of what were my thoughts on Mike Pence leading the athlete delegation, and um, I told Christine that I thought it was a poor choice that um, Mike Pence doesn't stand um, for the way that I was brought up, for the way I feel like you should treat other people. Um, He has pushed legislation that's really harmed a lot of LGBTQ plus people in Indiana. Um, I'm very grateful that that legislation hasn't hurt me, Um, but I don't agree that he is someone who represents all of the athletes. And the next day I go into the rink 
Um, my program music is on my phone. So I turn my phone on airplane mode so I can't get calls or text during a practice. I turn it off airplane mode and I have eight voicemails. I have um, a few from people from the uh, Olympic Committee who I know from just doing a few media things. I have some from U.S. figure skating and I have some from my sports agent at the time. And I'm like, <laughs> I messed up. I don't know what I did. <laughs> and so I start calling everyone back. And what I was told was that the vice president's office reached out and would like to set up a private phone call with me. And um, at first, this feels like a huge honor. You know, for your entire life, you think of the office of the president and the vice president. And it feels like this distinguished honor, like I cannot believe I am going to be given the opportunity to speak with someone who has so much power or an influence. And I thought about it. And um, I talked to a lot of people that I trust in, in that day. I made a lot of phone calls and I had a lot of me time. And um, it didn't feel right to take that phone call. Uh, I knew that I was giving these interviews and, and you know, saying funny things and having fun. And, you know, I was starting to get a few, like, articles kind of get blasted around. And um, I knew that the thing that was going to be most important to me is that when I got to the Olympics, I wasn't a clown. Because I know that if I were sitting at home and there was this, like, funny guy and then he was bad, I'd be like, we should have sent somebody serious. This is a joke. Don't go to the Olympics. Don't be like making everybody laugh and then not show up. So that was my main focus. And I said, you know what? I don't need to take this phone call. That conversation isn't even for me. It's for the people whose lives have been affected in Indiana and the legislation he's pushed. Like I said, I was very lucky that legislation he's pushed hasn't affected my life. I lived the same life I lived before. Um, but, you know, it's for that trans woman that can't go to the bathroom that, or, um, can't serve in the military that, uh, doesn't have pr protections against discriminations in the workplace. It's for those people. And I, I felt like, you know, that's, I, I don't feel like anything I'm going to say is going to change his mind. He didn't know who I was one minute before he read that article. And I left it at that. That's all how I left it. And um, when I got to the games, of course, somebody found out that they reached out and I denied a phone call. Um, and then, you know, the president, the vice president's office came back and said, no, that never happened, which is shocking. They're usually so transparent and honest. I was blown away. Then they came back within an hour and said, yes, it did happen. And then um, Mike Pence, before the opening ceremonies, was tweeting at me saying that he was for me and for all the athletes. And um, of course, I wanted to say something back, but um, it wasn't the time or the place. They had already made a, a way bigger deal out of this than I have. I had even tried to. I I was asked a question I and I answered it honestly and um it it really got blown up by their office and um you know I really didn't need to elaborate on it because I didn't want my teammates to get put in a position of being asked of what they thought of what was going on with me it's it's their olympic experience and it was mine and I didn't want it to be about Mike Pence and it's a time of incredible focus right after Absolutely. missing 2010 2014 
2018, you're finally here, and it's yes. this this moment at 28. And and something that you were saying is you had you know while most people at 28 don't make a first Olympics, you had this advantage of maturity and really embracing kind of the magnitude of what the Olympics was about. Mm -hmm. Because at 21, I was just so terrified and my views were just so myopic on what the goals and what needed to be accomplished. I didn't really embrace and and enjoy it in that way. And I, I think that really came through. And did you feel that you had a responsibility or this this platform as being the first U.S. Winter Olympian to come out uh, as as being openly gay and to meddle on top of that, which congratulations. Um, what, what was that like? Did you kind of just suddenly become this beacon in the gay community? And did you feel like you had to lead and, and stand up for people that didn't have a voice? Um, I remember after the not qualifying for the 24 team, 24 2014 Olympic team, there we go, um, that um, I really needed to make a few changes, that I needed to be doing things because I felt it in my soul. I couldn't just keep competing because it was just what I've always done. I remember uh, 2014 was when the Olympics were in Sochi, Russia, and there was this huge controversy because Russia had came out with this anti-gay propaganda law. And uh, I had been asked a bunch of questions uh, about what I thought because, you know, I wasn't out. But um, when I would get to know somebody who was doing an interview, they would figure out um, that I was gay. It didn't take Nancy Drew. Then there was a lot of interest in, like, what was my opinion heading into those games. We really weren't given any word that, like, our safety could be guaranteed or what that meant. I didn't know if I said anything, if I would be putting myself or teammates in, in danger There was no clear text on what gay propaganda is, and there still isn't. And I remember thinking that I didn't say anything. And I thought, you know, I remember being that young gay kid from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who felt like I was an alien in my hometown. Even sitting with my brothers and sisters, I would steal like my mom's self-tanner, and I'd be like, I'm not even the same color as these people. And I'd just be like, you know what? I feel so different. I just didn't feel like I belonged for so long that like I remember listening and reading so many people and their different coming out experiences. I said, you know what? Even if one person reads it, I want to be able to do the same thing. So I said that if I'm going to do this, I really need to just be in the best shape of my life. I need to be killing it. I need to be so on top of it because I couldn't be like bad, fat, and gay. I needed to be good and 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 a good representation of like my community. And so I remember that I medaled at the 2015 US Championships and then shortly after I um did an article with US Figure Skating with my friend uh, Ashley Wagner and they wanted to talk about our story and I talked to Ashley about it and I talked to um uh, Renee Felton, who is the head of media relations for U.S. Figure Skating, that I wanted to just lightly tuck in in the middle of this interview that I was gay and that my coming out really kind of helped improve my skating. And um, I got a call from uh, Pat St. Peter, who was the president of U.S. Figure Skating at the time, and she said, I just want you to know that we're all behind you here at U.S. Figure Skating. If this is something you want to do, you have our 100% support. 
And so I came out in um, the the fall of 2015 in this article. And um, I think in that moment, even if it didn't mean anything to anybody then, to me, I was speaking to like the younger version of myself. And I had stepped into that role. And then at the 2018 Olympics, when I think so many other people were introduced to who I was, I had already been sort of living that lifestyle of trying to be that role model I wish I had when I was younger, that I was prepared for it. It didn't feel like anything that just had blindsided me and like, it, here it was, and Adam Rippon, what do you have to say? I was like, I'm ready for this moment. And I've been ready for this moment ever since I've accepted those disappointments I've had, that when I wear those scars proudly, like I've been ready to be that role model. It sounds like you finally, you found a cause bigger than yourself. Right. And, and sometimes it's easier to do things for other people than it is for yourself. Um, and and I, f I find that in all different facades of life, that when I was able to do it for like the greater good, it felt so much easier to practice. It felt so much easier to do that extra hour on the ice, the extra workout in the gym, because it was for somebody else than it was for me. And um, that was my motivation, getting ready for the Olympics. And so when I kind of fell into that position, it felt like, okay, here I am. This feels right, and I'm, I'm ready. I, before I move on to all the incredible things you're, you're up to now, I wanted to step back and ask you about your training and your coaches and your, how, you, how you navigated your competitive career. And I know that like many athletes, myself included, the, the narrative of your competitive career has an element of searching. You moved multiple times and you worked with a handful of coaches and choreographers over your career. And I was wondering if you could walk me through the mental process you went through because I know that the logic behind my decisions is just unlike anything else in the world where you allow for serendipity and for mm -hmm. chance and you rely on other people. As a solo athlete, you really take everything upon yourself that if you are not excelling or improving or or winning, you're doing something wrong yes. because you could have a different training regime. You could have done an extra run through. You could have a different workout. And so it leads to this constant questioning and asking, and are you always optimizing? And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, there's some coaches that have, sorry, some skaters that have the same coach um, since they started, like Brian Boitano. And, and then there's some people that, that do a bit of searching. And, and what was that process like for you? I think that um, when I made the decision to change coaches, it was truly that searching for the perfect atmosphere. And um, I, I remember being in um, so many different environments. And um, I think the one thing I was always looking for was that I always found motivation in a new place. Also, you know, every time I changed coaches, I, I, I remember that I was in such a different part of my life that I, I felt like I grew out of that situation and I felt like I needed to grow a little bit more. Um, now, being outside of skating, now I see that like as um, the kind of person I am, that I've always um, grasped for information from so many different sources, that I'm never okay just doing the research, finding it in one place and saying, this is it. That like I've always had that curiosity to get as much knowledge as possible. 
Um, as an athlete, sometimes that can hinder you because it takes, I would say, a solid two years in one location for you to really settle into a training environment. And it's such little things of finding out where your grocery store is, knowing the route to your training facility on the, you know, like the back of your hand, getting into, um, you know, a, a rhythm, finding a therapist, finding um, a, a trainer, finding a coach, finding a choreographer. Find, it's so many different elements that make up one training site. But I still felt this need to gain as much knowledge from other people. It was so much curiosity I had to how other people trained. I would say my last coach that I had, um, his name was Rafael Artunian, who you've also worked with in the past as well. He is somebody who I'm glad I met later in my life because had I met him earlier, it would have been a circus. He is the most hands-off coach I've ever worked with. And where I was in my life, he, he was the perfect fit because he made me fight for what I wanted. And I didn't go into the rink and just somebody told me what to do every day. Raphael would come to me and say, do you have a plan? Who are you going to work with? Did you find these people to work with? How is this training session going to go? He was going to push me and make sure that I did everything that he thought I needed to do. But at the end of the day, you know, as a 25, 26, 27-year-old, if you still need a babysitter as an athlete, you, you haven't developed as a person. and You don't have the coping skills to go into an event for there to be like a fire in the arena and for you not to lose your focus. And I would say by the end of my career, Raphael prepared me along with all of the other coaches that I worked with, gave me so many different tools, but it was really Raphael who helped kind of put them all together to help me make those decisions. I would go to Raphael and, and say, you know what, when we go to the Olympics, we're going to bring my friend and who's also a coach, Derek Delmore with us. He is really calm. He's focused. He's organized. I think he's going to be a great member to our team. Raphael never did any work with Derek beforehand. Um, and Raphael trusted my decision. And it, I think it takes a lot for, um, you know, a high-level coach to kind of take their ego out of it. And not to micromanage. Completely. To give you ownership of your career. Yes. And so, you know, he was really down for whatever. As long as I was working hard and I liked what I did, and it was the first time I felt like I was a, truly in the driver's seat. And um, I don't think that I, I would have been in the right place had I met him earlier. But, you know, one thing I did want to say was that, you know, at the Olympics, a big difference between our experiences is that um, they introduced this team event. Mm -hmm. um, I just missed that one. <laughs> I know, truly. And and it, that completely changed my mindset going into the games. Um, you know, when, when you competed, there was one focus for you. It was like you had to get your medal. And then it was over. You had eight minutes, you know. Uh, for a short program and your and your long program. I had 13 minutes. So long. <laughs> it's so much longer. But you know what? It, that sense of camaraderie in the games and that opportunity to get that medal with so many other people, I'm so grateful for because that really epitomized what the Olympics was. And um, 
it's that sense of being on Team USA. And sometimes as an individual athlete, you don't really feel that. You kind of get lost. I would always watch gymnastics. And be and, so jealous. Yes, and they get a medal after each event. We have to do a short and a long I and know. maybe get one medal. Yes, <laughs> and I love that team event because it's like that's that sense of team um, really epitomizes what the Olympics is. It made it so, it made it a much different competition for me. Um, you know, it was also the only opportunity I would have to medal, but it also made me feel like I had purpose on the team that I would be able to be there and to, and to help my teammates get that medal. I, you know, I, I knew that going into the individual event, um, I would need like the top, you know, seven or eight skaters to, you know, get the flu or like H1N1. <laughs> and then and then I could step in and onto the podium. And, you know, I knew that, you know, I, I would say that my generation of skaters was 2010, 2014. And I had just been consistent and solid to make it onto that team to be a really good anchor on the team event. And so um, I think it really had to do of why I felt so comfortable there of what all the coaches I'd worked with. And Raphael really taking a step back and letting me be the leader of that team. Um, that we had at home. And so then when I could go into the team event, I could feel, you know what, I'm ready to take on this experience. I'm ready to take on this responsibility of being on this team where so many other people are relying on me in this moment so that they can have a medal as well. Um, that all of that prepared me for those Olympic moments. And it's interesting to hear how you, you talk about it and why you didn't medal in the singles, the solo event. Mm -hmm. Your, your skates were incredible. It seemed like you had the time of your life. You just had this incredible platform and became this, this darling of the media. And, and so I think it really puts into perspective what is success because I mm -hmm. think the audience at home thinks that winning a gold medal is success. But no one's talking about most of the people that won medals last year, but people are still talking about you. Mm -hmm. And so you you've done this magical dance to <laughs> use the Truly. skating platform to really launch a new career. And and that brings me into, I guess, this this next era of Adam. And, and you've said publicly that you want to leave skating behind mm -hmm. and you have this vision of what the future can be. And it sounds like you have a chance to use your humor now, which you mm -hmm. had to uh, put on hold before. And, and so I, I wonder, I certainly understand where you're coming from, but perhaps for the audience or for people that, that might not understand with skating having been your whole life and you're an Olympian, why that's something that you want to leave behind you and, and where it is that you want to go. You know, I think from the outside looking in, sometimes it feels like, wow, you did something your entire life and now you just walk away. From the inside, it feels like you've lived in this small bubble for 20 years. And sometimes it can be scary to go back into the rink because you feel like you could get stuck in that bubble and not see the rest of the world. I call that the big fish in the small pond versus being the tadpole in the ocean. Absolutely. It's that it's such, you know, it feels like you get, you could be thrown right back in there and you've had just a small taste of what's out there in the entire world. I'll always be grateful for skating, and I'll always try to be connected to it in some way. It's impossible not to be. It's something I did for 20 years of my life. I, I, I'll, I'll always be grateful for those moments I had, and the lessons I learned um, are so invaluable, and I bring them in to everything I do. And I realize that being an athlete, 
in any situation I do now is such an upper hand because I realized that my version of working hard and being lazy is completely different from everybody else. I wouldn't say everybody else. I would say your average like beer can Betty. And that like... We need to coin that, make yeah. t-shirts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that like you are so used to pushing yourself to incredible extremes and that now, you know... A lot of the things I do, I would say my job is to be funny. My job is to be personable. And um, to do that is a lot easier than doing a a high-intensity circuit workout. And um, it takes a lot of mental energy that I wouldn't necessarily use to, you know, work before. Um, so it's different and it's a transition. It's it's not it's I need to take a step away from the skating so that I can focus on honing the craft that I'm working on now, which is being in comedy is which is um, uh, interacting with so many different people. I need to take the same amount of time that I took to perfect being an athlete to the best of my ability to do that same thing now in this like next step. And, um, you know, to go back to, you know, redefining what does winning mean? Um, I think there's a huge difference to being a winner and being a champion. I think a winner is somebody who comes away with the trophy, with the gold medal. You've won. But a champion is somebody who sees beyond that. And they have done all of the things and all of the steps for all of the right reasons, and they walk away just as satisfied as the winner. And I think one of the best things that ever happened to me was at a national championship in 2015. I came and I skated the best two programs of my entire life. I thought that it was just Everything that had gone on before, it just came to this moment and it felt like I'm going to win. The last skater goes out. It was Jason Brown and he skated really well. He wins. And in that moment, I feel, well, God, like what was all of this worth that like it was my best and it wasn't even good enough. And in that moment, I remember saying to myself, remember where you were a year ago and remember what you told yourself a day before. I was sitting in fifth after the short program and I had skated really well. And I was like, I don't think that's fair. And um, I I remember saying, you know what? If I end up fifth, I'm going to be the best fifth place that's ever skated in the history of the world. And I skated really well. And and for one second, I was sad that I wasn't first. But in that same moment, I said, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I'm stressing And I'm making myself feel bad for a coin on a ribbon. And it's really the feeling of like everything I had overcome up to that moment that was so worth it. And also in that moment, I was able to look at Jason Brown, the, the champion, and be genuinely happy for him. He worked just as hard as I did. I like to think I worked harder. You know, we all think that we work the hardest. But he worked incredibly hard, just as hard to be U.S. champion. He earned it. And I realized that success for somebody else doesn't mean failure failure for me. That more for someone doesn't mean less for me. And in that moment, 
And in those years following, I realized that when somebody else is successful, you can be a champion of them. And it doesn't mean that you're bowing down to them or, or you don't believe you can be just as good. But when you can be champion, when you can be a champion of other people who are incredible, it's more for you. You build yourself up in that same way. You can realize and appreciate and recognize the the good that someone else can do. You can improve yourself. You can look at them and you can improve. And um, that's what I try to do. And I try to do that now because it can be really scary when you go in and, and you're looking for, you know, your, your place in the world, stepping outside of skating. In skating, I knew, you know, I, I knew I had like this little pocket of the universe where I belonged. And in this new chapter, it feels like there's so many options. There's so many different avenues that it can feel like I don't know where I fit in. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it that I think that we forget. We have that joy when we first start something and you land your first jump and the feeling of pushing yourself and working really hard and achieving something for you is so satisfying. And then somehow we get lost and we get this messaging and it's all about the gold and the the medal counts. And then we see that we're not a success unless we have a gold medal. And again, it, it's a symbol of something. And if mm-hmm. we go back to what sportsmanship is and coming and it's about excellence and performance and camaraderie. That's a really beautiful way to put it and a reminder that I think a lot of people have gotten out of touch with because right. it's, it's just about winning and winning at any, at any cost, which, you know, we've seen with certain athletes in certain countries. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're so right about saying you, you knew your place in the universe. And, and now the universe just got infinitely bigger for you. Yes. And... I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited uh, to read your memoir. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to know a little bit about how you picked the title, <laughs> Beautiful on the Outside, and and about what readers can can ex- expect. Is there a theme or message you really want to get across? And and was there just a voice in your head that you just you have a story you wanted to tell? Is this about being a role model? Is this about just being sassy? Like, what can a reader expect to find? So the title of the book, there's two sides to the same coin. I think um, Beautiful on the Outside is a story about a boy, aka me, where I tried to put out this persona that everything's fine. You know, my house isn't on fire. I'm fine. I'm great. I look great. Don't I? Everything's perfect. But there's such an internal battle that, um, you know, even when everything feels like it's a mess, as an athlete and um, as in a performance sport, you have to put out this persona of everything is fine. And you have to pretend like everything's beautiful on the outside. I also wanted a book title that sounded a little bit ridiculous and funny. And so I made sure that— Which you accomplished. Thank you. (laughs) Success. I wanted you to see it. I wanted you to laugh. So there's a deeper meaning to it, but uh, on the surface, I wanted it to be something funny. I wanted to um, have you laugh with me and at me all throughout the book. I wanted to touch on those um, lessons that I've learned and that we've talked about today of like what's a winner versus a champion, of of the struggles that I've gone through and the thinking that I've used to have um, of thinking that I was only, you know, good enough to be so much. And, and that was it. 
And um, when I was able to open up my thinking, everything really changed. And I, I learned so much about myself in getting ready and going to the Olympic Games that I really felt like I wanted to share those lessons and those stories that I learned. It was also really important to me that it was something really funny because for me, it was sort of the perfect bridge of talking about my skating, but incorporating that voice that so many people who have come to know when they think about Adam Rippon. Well, maybe we can all hope for a Netflix special soon. I mean, <laughs> you said it. So maybe. You're, you're, yep. Plant the seeds. It's been said right here, yeah, from right your now. your lips to God's ear. What piece of advice would you want to share with, with the world, something that deeply affected you or was your North Star? Um, the one piece of advice I would like to share is don't be afraid to fail. Um, my favorite quote is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And we would fail more often if we weren't afraid. We're so terrified of what other people will think of us, if they'll think that we're a failure, if they'll think that we're stupid. And truly, what other people think does not matter. We need to start giving out medals for failing. And yes, we do. Completely change behavior. Because you know what? The people who really go out there and, and they fail and they're not and and they can own it. You know, it's not just laughing it off. Of course, there are moments we, where we need to laugh it off, but there are truly moments where you need to own it and be like, "Yeah, I, I messed up. I I'm going to analyze this and move forward." It's it's bringing those failures with you that leads you to like expectations and 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 accomplishments that you didn't really even think were possible in the beginning. So I want to end with one question that may seem a little odd to you, but something that I ask all my guests. And outside of the Olympics, what would your Olympic moment be? And obviously, it makes more sense if you're not an Olympic athlete. Right. But, you know, that that moment that has this gravity, this, wow, I've reached this moment and everything just stops in time and and you you look at yourself. Seems like you've had a lot of those since the Olympics and during think, the Olympics. Yeah, you know, there's been a few moments where I've been like, holy moly. Um, you know, one was uh, getting uh, a, a call and being told that I was in the Time 100 um, Most Influential People magazine, which was uh, surreal. Actually, I would say, but like a, a, a defining moment for me truly was, I know you said what's an Olympic moment outside of skating, but it is outside of skating, but I was at the Olympics and I remember thinking so many people wait for this moment that I'm having right now. I'm on the podium with my teammates and I look up, I can see the flag and I remember thinking like, this is the moment that everybody talks about. Like, you can see it. I can see, um, you know, my mom sitting down. We're in the the metal plaza. I can see my mom and my, bro my brother and my sister, and they're, you know, they're taking pictures and they're laughing and they're crying. And I remember looking down and thinking, this moment is really for them. This is so for them. And I can't wait until tomorrow because I know that I have like four or five interviews booked tomorrow and I can't wait for those interviews. And in that moment, I was like, the Olympics was for me to realize that about myself, that I've always used humor as this, um, 
avenue for me to kind of relieve stress as a coping mechanism. I remember, you know, I, I never felt like I was like the best skater or n- always the champion. I, you know, I did win a few things, but, um, I always would make people laugh and I was always entertaining people. And in that moment, it all made sense. I was my best competitive self when I thought it wasn't a competition, when I was just entertaining people. And this was the first time where I was allowed to do that without my skates on. And it felt like, oh my God, this is what I've been meaning to do my entire life. And it only took two Olympic disappointments and a trip to Korea to figure it out. You've been such an inspiration and what you've done, the journey it it that you took to get to the 2018 Games, what you've done since, um, your activism. And I'm sure everyone's excited to see a lot more of you and follow your new show on YouTube and read your memoir. I hope so. Beautiful on the outside. <laughs> um, thank you again. And hopefully we'll get to do something like this again soon. Uh, I hope so. Maybe when we're on tour. Yes, I love that. And, you know, Sasha, it's been so fun getting to talk to you. It was, it's so fun to be your friend now as somebody who I looked up to as I was growing up. So I, it's completely my pleasure to be here today. We're all grown up. I know. (laughs) Thank you. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.